some people think little girls should be seen and not heard. One, two, three, four! People do feel very radically different about gender experience. I mean, that's just like the rules of feminism. That diversity is like the number one thing I think that has to be reckoned with. Agenda with Tanya Ali and Katie Winton. Good morning. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, your Saturday morning fix of art, politics and trash from a feminist perspective. I'm Tanya Ali. And I'm Katie Winton. And Agenda on FBI Radio is broadcast on Gadigal land. And I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people as the original custodians of the land that we broadcast on and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge the significance of Redfern as a place of strength, resistance, knowledge sharing and storytelling for many communities and would like to honour that history. This week on Agenda, we're pretty excited to be chatting to dancer and choreographer Amrita Heppi about her work at the National 2019. The National essentially shines a light on contemporary Australian art curated across the Art Gallery of New South Wales, Carriageworks and the MCA. And I'm really looking forward to hearing about Amrita's work. We're also going to be joined by Uda <laughs> Widanatha I always <laughs> wrote it. Sorry, Uda. Uh, Widana Parathirana, um, who is an artist, manager and promoter who works with the likes of Miss Blanks and Habits. Uda's taking part in a panel tomorrow at Miss Peaches for Women in uh, Music Empowerment Day 2018, along with Melody Fogani, Helena Ho, Abitonia Ebracasa and Heidi Lefner. Um, we'll be talking to them all about that, as well as about the music industry uh, in a more broad sense. I'm very excited to chat. Uh, last week, we heard the first in a new ongoing segment for Agenda called Rough Idea, presented by Auckland-based writer and artist Natas- Natasha Matilla-Smith. Uh, Rough Idea will feature chats with various creative practitioners that Natasha comes across in New Zealand. This week we'll be hearing more from her talk with art curator Joanna Gordon-Smith. Uh, also in news, Rihanna was in Sydney for the anniversary of one year of Fenty Beauty and she went to karaoke at D1 in Chinatown. Uh, our producer Mari goes to karaoke very <laughs> regularly um, and is really upset this morning that the one time she didn't go to karaoke, Rihanna was there. Um, and she was also at Sephora doing people's makeup and I'm personally quite devastated that we didn't invite her onto Agenda. Um, but I didn't even realise she was in town because it turns out I'm a terrible investigative journalist. <laughs> Um, as you may or may not have guessed. (laughs) Um, But we can just play one of my all-time favourite Rihanna songs to make up for it. Uh, This is, uh, I think, like the perfect Saturday morning rainy, like, melancholic song. A hundred percent. It's called Love on the Brain. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio.
time will fly Just to get close to you Could we burn something today? And I'll run for miles Just to get a taste This is Rough Idea with Natasha Matilla-Smith. Last week I spoke to a curator and writer, Joanna Gordon-Smith, about an exhibition she curated called From the Shore. Here's the rest of the conversation where we discuss on a more personal level the role of Indigenous artists and curators and how those roles may have changed over the five-year span that Joanna and I have known each other. Okay, let's just maybe preface a few things. You and I have been friends for a while and talk about... How did we become friends? I don't remember. No, yes, I do remember. I do. So (laughs) uh, I was interning at Artspace, and I think I began a writing workshop group for young Pacific writers. And I didn't know any writers, so I got some recommendations, and you were one of the names. No, I wasn't one of the names. Isn't that what? Did you? I mean, I did your workshop, but, like, actually it was... My friend Cordell had been asked to join the workshop, <laughs> and I was like, she doesn't even write. <laughs> and uh, I basically emailed back, and I was just, because Cordell is also like, yep. why would they ask me? Yeah, in hindsight, there probably should have been a better process. <laughs> but I emailed you, and I said, Cordell doesn't want to be in it, I want to be in it. Yeah, that was a real ad hoc thing. 
But I think that's actually how I met a lot of our friends now and a lot of the people we work with now. Yeah. I'm kind of impressed when we look back at that crew now and I'm like, everyone's kind of gone on to really make a mark. Yeah, and you're responsible for that. Thank you. (laughs) Finally getting the credit I deserve. (laughs) So why did you ask me to speak? Um, I asked you to speak because we're often on the same wavelength and you can usually verbalize what I'm thinking. Yeah, it's just it's just nice to talk about indigenous arts and like where it's going to go from here. Yeah. Like that's what I am somewhat interested in as a as an indigenous artist myself. I feel like a lot has changed since that writing workshop. That writing workshop was what 2013. Mm. We were all quite recent grads. This obviously isn't the whole art scene. This is just a small group of us. Yeah. But I feel like at that moment in time, I just moved to Auckland. And I felt like there was this real strong urge to reject any notion of a real prescriptive sense of what Pacific art was. And I remember that a lot of us were really interested in trying to align ourselves more with kind of international discourses. Do you know what I mean? Like social practice was really hot. So we were talking about social practice a lot. We were really fascinated with particular theorists who were, you know, writing from overseas. And we were really just trying to establish ourselves as people to be taken seriously. And being taken seriously meant being seen as artists first, Pacific second. Yeah. I feel like that's changed though. I think my, yeah, my position has changed in that they don't need to be separated. Yeah, I agree with you on that. But I guess my, my text was about, because um, a lot of my practice at uni was very resisting those definitions, like, of, oh, this is woman's art, or this is Pacific art. Yeah. So I, I made a lot of bland visual <laughs> decisions, so, like, a lot of minimalist Oh, you were trying to disguise yourself, choices. weren't you? Didn't you? Um... Well, in a way, but also I was just kind of, a tutor had told me that I should use my biography and I was like what does that mean for one I don't really want to make work about being a woman or indigenous yeah Yeah. as if it's some kind of subject matter that you can splinter off from the rest of who you are was there something that made you feel as if that you could be kind of like fully Maori fully Samoan and fully an artist and that you didn't have to lessen one in order to heighten the other well, I guess that's still me coming to terms with my identity. Like, I don't feel completely comfortable yet. You know, like, I don't... I still don't feel like I'm a good Māori. When I say, you know, these things are inherent in my biography, biology, I am just kind of say them quite tentatively still. Yeah. Because I'm like, yes, yes, I do. I do believe that. I mean, I'm 100%. This is Māori art because I'm Māori. Yeah, of but course. But, like, those ingrained, you know, internalised racism still exists. Yeah. It still exists in my head, like... That totally reminds me of Hannah's... Sorry, I forget Hannah. her last name. No, 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 no. Oh, Hannah. Hannah, <laughs> the comedian who wrote Nanette. Um... Sorry, I feel bad. This is an Australian show and I'm speaking about an Australian. Sorry. But she has that joke where she's like uh, talking about um, the Pride Parade and yeah. how she's watching it and it's one of her few uh, references to gay culture. 
And she's like, man, where are the quiet guys? Yeah, yeah. Where do they go? Um, in my own practice, like, I think I spent quite a few of my first original shows trying to kind of take away the Pacific frame as mm. a way of opening out readings for the artist's work. So I was thinking of that show that Talia and I curated, A Sense of Place. It was a, it was an exhibition about artists who are looking at the way that roads were constructing particular livelihoods. Yeah. But it was a show that was commissioned by Taotai, which means that it's... Taotai Pacific Arts Trust. Yes. Sorry, so for listeners, that's an advocacy group in Aotearoa that supports Pacific artists. And one of the things that Talia and I did for that show uh, was to include a lot of non-Pacific artists with the hopes that in doing so, the Pacific artists in the show would have their works primarily read by the thematic theme rather than by the biographical mandate of the show. Yeah. And that was my belief in the way to curate for a long time. And then I went to the Honolulu Biennial, which is the exact opposite in the sense that it's, I mean, it, basically it's all Indigenous. It's in Hawaii. It's got a Pacific Central focus in terms of how it looks at an international region. And one of the things that that show had was like three or four artists all speaking on the same issue. And yet somehow that show also respected the work really well. And all of a sudden I felt like I was facing these two different frameworks of how to support artists to kind of have their work echo on as many levels as possible. And one was to kind of use a thematic approach and the other was to have it really grounded in Indigenous Methodologies. Yeah, I think I recognise that there are multiple methodologies that, or more than one methodology that can be used to pay respect to an artist's work or, or ways mm. in which you can find curatorial frameworks. Well, I suppose there's kind of like two ways of looking at it, right? Like you can choose a framework that doesn't offer a predetermined reading of a work that reinforces kind of like existing mainstream expectations. And then there are frameworks that really seek to enhance the indigeneity of something. Yeah, I guess I was quite interested in in that, like, enhancing of, of indigeneity. Like, that's problematic, right? Are we are we saying that's problematic? Um, <laughs> and that it, it kind of sets a parameter around authenticity? I don't know. Cultural? I don't know. Like, I think, I mean, my current show, which probably mentioned it because that's got a very indigenous kind of position is is from the shore which is a video exhibition and is based in the work of two Maori filmmakers and their influence and contemporary artists and both Maori filmmakers Meritamita and Barry Barclay really believed that there was something distinctive about indigenous filmmaking and I don't think that they were trying to say that all indigenous films must adhere to this but that there is a type of filmmaking that is indigenous does that make right. sense? Yeah. That, like, if you're not, like, Taika might not be making this way or whatever, I'm not really quite sure if he does or doesn't, but rather that, like, there is a type of filmmaking that has an indigenous grounding. I feel like it's that kind of, it's something yeah. instinctual about it. Like, I think it's really intuitive. And Yeah, intuitive. So if we're, if we're talking about indigenous filmmaking and, like, not being able to be taught that... The perspective is something in, ingrained 
Yeah, like it might help to use an example, like Barry used to talk about like the marae or hui as a kind of useful way of thinking about an indigenous filmmaking process, in the sense that there are lots of things you might instinctively know from being on a marae, like don't talk over people, or you primarily listen instead of talking. And so your filmmaking or your use of the camera should be to primarily document from a distance and not to intervene and just to allow people to talk and just capture it. So like for him, that's an instinctual thing that comes out of a Māori worldview of conversational modes of being on a marae. But I suppose to go back to that question of um, thinking about the ways in which a practice can enhance Indigenous values while also recognising Indigenous people with practices that are located in other spaces. So for example, someone who chooses to kind of make work that is heavily informed by Indigenous values mm-hmm. and practices yeah. as well as artists who are indigenous who choose to draw upon different histories or different not to make a binary I don't think that it's either or no while there's you know some of these things are quite inherent some of the customs are quite you know you have to be brought up in that manner you know like Fa'asamoa or something oh yeah like, Fa'asamoa Tikanga yeah Tikanga I think, you know, I'm going to write about this, but there's a few young people trying to get into old craft. There's just kind of things that you can't know. And there's a sense of trying to return to some kind of old way of, of being. But there's like a lot of confusion about how you do that. And I think that's maybe the challenge for us now, isn't it? Mm. Is that how do you hold on to Indigenous values or processes or knowledges or whatever it may be but at the same time recognize us in a contemporary moment and who we are in a contemporary moment it's really hard to negotiate like what to hold on to when the thing that you're trying to hold on to has always been moving that's the kind of illusion that it's it's static yeah but maybe that's a kind of young idealistic thing but because I'm in my mid-30s now. Yeah. Maybe I'm able to see it a bit better, but I was always kind of a mature... I was considered a mature student. I, like, I decided to do art when I was an adult, and yeah. I've been doing it since I was 25, and I only really did art because I liked drawing. And then I, I didn't realise exactly what art was, and... Um, you know, one of my first exhibitions was one of the Tuakana exhibitions. Oh, cool. At uni, and Nahuia Harrison was the curator. Oh, cool. And I, um, I don't know if I was just projecting this anxiety or not, but I presented her with like a pencil drawing on a on a canvas of um, Daniel Brawl, the the German actor, <laughs> crying. <laughs> I don't think she loved it. <laughs> like oh that's not really like super socially engaging yeah do you think you should make that art i don't know (laughs) yeah i think we're finally at a point where we're not telling people whether or not they should be making what they're making also wasn't super realistic drawing either like (laughs) so maybe it was just a bad one i mean it was good but it wasn't like it wasn't great good
New South Wales to showcase women in electronic music.
wanna fuck up my makeup He put in work, no pick up And he just wanna wake up next to me and eat the cake up Wanna fuck up my makeup He put in work, no pick up And he just wanna lay up next to me and beat the cake up You like me better with no makeup Oh, you wanna get it, daddy Oh, you wanna get it, daddy They call me daddy's little geisha Wanna fuck up my makeup? He put in work, no pickup. And he just wanna wake up next to me and eat the cake up. Wanna fuck up my makeup? He put in work, no pickup. And he just wanna lay up next to me and beat the pickup. You like me better with no makeup. Oh, you wanna get it, daddy? Oh, you wanna get it, daddy? They call me daddy's little geisha. Oh, you wanna get it, daddy? Oh, you wanna get it, daddy? I'm making love. That was Tommy Genesis with her new track, Daddy. And before that, you heard When I'm With Him by Empress Of. And we're joined right now by Uda Widana Patharana, who runs Melon PR, manages Miss Blanks and Habits, and also works in a, at Inertia Music. Uda, thanks so much for joining us this That's morning. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so tomorrow, as part of Women in Music Empowerment Day 2018, we'll talk about the name later, um, <laughs> you'll be speaking on a panel alongside Helena Ho, Ayabatanye Abracasa, Melody Fogani and Cloud Control's Heidi Lenfer to discuss industry challenges and strategies that can help create an environment of equality for all non-males and minority groups in music. Uh, what are some of the challenges you're hoping to address tomorrow? Um, well, I think tomorrow there's a lot of practical information for people that are working in the music industry, uh, especially in regards to cash. I don't think a lot of people really know how to manage their cash or do stuff about tax or anything. Broadly, like, I don't know, financial literacy should be taught at schools. <laughs> um, but there is, yeah, I suppose managing your money and everything like that as well. Um, tomorrow we'll also be talking about a lot of things to do with culture. One of my not favourite, but like when I talked with the moderator, uh, one of the most interesting points of discussion was um, talking about being genuinely ethical versus virtue signalling. Um, mm. Versus think, what? Virtue signalling. Uh-huh. Um, which I think is very interesting. Uh, and I think all I have to kind of, not all I have to say about that is, but like I think a lot of women and non-binary and people of colour um, broadly kind of undervalue that like them and their own existence just doing that thing just does so much rather than you know they don't have to be doing every everything or advocating for everything they just need to be present and just be themselves sometimes and that just the onflow effects of that is just so powerful so yeah yeah it sounds like there are a lot of practical um (laughs) like tips and tricks that you can talk about tomorrow which is something that i find yeah doesn't really get spoken about on panels 
Yeah, I mean, much. like, I think, like, most of the panelists that have been on have been, like, really, you know, full of hypotheticals or yeah. just, like, what would the industry look like if, you, if we were living in a perfect world or something like that. But I think, like, the, the bunch of panelists that are on tomorrow and just being able to speak, like, from their perspective and just be like, well, this is how I work. This is how I manage my time. This is how I manage my money. This is how I set my worth. Like, I don't think, like, many people have those sort of discussions, maybe, especially broadly as a freelancer. Like, it's, like, weird. You don't really talk to other people about how much money you're making and everything. Not how much money you're making, but how do you follow up invoices and everything like that. Mm. So I think it's actually, like, quite very practical. If you're confused about just broadly running your own freelance business, even if you're not in music, come check it out. Uh, and you've recently relocated from Brisbane to Sydney. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you found many differences within each city's respective music industries? Um, well, Brisbane is obviously very smaller. It probably operates around four venues. Um, I find Sydney, maybe, like, people are forced to work together, like, more. I see a bigger crossover of different sections, kind of like Brisbane as well, but that is also, you know, due to the lack of spaces and venues and things like that. Um... But in comparison with Melbourne, where I also spend a lot of time, I don't know, I think people people are nice, people are friendly, people are interested in what each other is doing. I always said, like, move to Melbourne if you want to be creative, but move to Sydney if you want to be a go-getter. <laughs> <laughs> We're just go-getters. We're just, um, here we are. Being empowered. <laughs> oh, that's actually a really good name. <laughs> go get, go-getter empowerment. Yeah. 2018. <laughs> Uh, yeah, back, Do you want to talk about the name? Back to the name, yeah, of of the event. So Women in Music Empowerment Day. Um, it is actually a really incredible lineup, and along with mm. the panel that you're speaking on, Uda, there's a bunch of DJs, a bunch of bands playing, um, and I think some keynote speakers earlier in the day mm-hmm. as well. It's going to start at like 1 p.m., I think, and go on throughout the night tomorrow at Miss Peaches. But... Yeah, I do. I don't know when uh, when I saw the name initially, and I think this is maybe the second or third year it's run, um, and they maybe feel like they're stuck with this name that maybe wasn't a great choice. I mean, like I sort of see two ways. Well, think two ways about it because since maybe in the concept of branding, like mm. lots of people might see that strong brand associated with it and everything. Not strong brand associated with it, but like someone who like maybe is like quite entry level. Mm. broadly yeah. <laughs> we'll see that and be like oh wow that's really cool and everything and it's palatable and it se- might seem like you know especially if like there was a person who was like 13 14 years old who wasn't that well versed in like intersectional feminism broadly yeah, then totally. that might be more accessible or they might understand and see that as a practical thing for them to go to whereas if you have like you know try to be more encompassing of like all the binaries and all the genders and everything yeah. like that or maybe just something that was like uh not didn't sound as cis white feminist then mm. like um that wouldn't maybe translate as well as well or maybe people would think it's like too i don't know highbrow yeah but i guess the flip side of that is then you risk alienating people who aren't and le- who aren't 13 and 14 and, you know like, <laughs> oh, most really... definitely and also just like other like you know uh like you know any other questioning sort of like young people who may not yeah. even you know they're the reason that I do what I do is for those people, you know. It's not about people that have already come out or know what the identity is. It's, just, it's very much like creating, you know, with the artists that I manage and everything, enabling their success so people can be like, oh, 
that exists and them having the power to go and do those things themselves. Like, it's not about, yeah, I mean, it is about old people, but, you know, <laughs> it's about giving them the space to be like, yeah, I, this is what I feel comfortable doing. And yeah. Like that. Yeah. Like, there's so much power in representation and seeing mm. someone that you can identify with. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting, interesting. name choice. Interesting <laughs> name is. choice, but I, very practical. Yeah. Very, very practical. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, the... They're putting it out there, <laughs> but yeah, I like I get I get the idea, and I think that the idea behind the entire event is really really positive, and I'm excited that it's happening. But I don't know, maybe change the name next year. <laughs> <laughs> Just hot tips from Tanya. <laughs> um, Uda, what were some of the other things that you were saying would be discussed? Tomorrow, we were talking about money before, but also there was something else that I found really interesting around setting personal boundaries. Oh, uh, yeah. So, like, essentially, it's a part of the panel where sort of talking about, like, transactional relationships and yeah. your personal relationships and sort of setting boundaries, but setting boundaries and making time between the two. Um, and I find that a really interesting concept in the concept of management because it's, like, in the concept of management, you have very long-running relationships. And, yes, they are, like, the not the basis of it, but, like, I would say... No, the basis of it isn't transactional, actually. I mean, like, you, yes, we make money together and things like that, but also there is a lot of faith. There is a lot of, like, really high stakes. Like, essentially being someone's manager is, like, being in a relationship with them. Yeah. Like, it's, mm. like a proper, like, full-on relationship with them. So, um, and, yeah, uh, I suppose it's just, like, a not, a... not a gray area, but it's just, like, a weird sort of, like, line to, like, constantly dip in, out of, uh, dip in and out of. Because, like, sometimes, yeah, like just being like a a friend and like you know doing a lot of just like hate to use the word emotional labor and stuff like that but that is like what is required of you as a manager and then the other time you're doing all the admin and invoices and stuff like that so you can't ever be like you know as much as i would love to tell my artists only contact me between nine to five Mm. on these days and sometimes i do um you know that's not the reality of it like Mm -hmm. you're constantly constantly working but also you're constantly just like looking after something that you've put faith into and invested you know for your babies or something yeah and yeah. i think like similarly artists have put so much of themselves into their work that it does kind of even further blur that boundary between friendship mm. and and work because you're essentially the person that is looking after something that is so personal and so important to them that it, you know definitely. like it really and i find this with visual arts as well it's like you're often kind of like uh, assuming this role with someone where you're talking to them about something that they've created mm. in their bedroom or in like a really dire mental mm. health state and now they're putting it out into the world and you kind of like are the um, intermediate person between communicating that mm-hmm. to a mm-hmm. like really broad general public audience and taking care of like there's a lot of care involved in it yeah, and I think it becomes definitely. difficult to care for yourself sometimes yeah yeah so um, but it should be I'm like interested to see what the especially because it says like Melody is like another manager, like Helen is like, she I think is also an artist manager, but comes from a touring background. And the other two, are, well, uh, Abe Tonya and <coughs> um, Heidi uh, are both artists. So it should be interesting to see the sort of, no, I'm not going to say conflicting, but just like different perspectives yeah. on how those sort of relationships work. And also just like still making time, you know, I think especially in Sydney, since I've moved here, all of my friends are people that are involved in music and stuff like that. Whereas where I lived in Brisbane, yeah, some of them were, but also I, because since I grew up there and everything, had like a lot of time for friends that weren't involved in creative practice. And I would be like, ooh, big win. And they'd be like, what does that mean? <laughs> so like, here, yeah, like, it's really interesting to see, like, um, I don't know how people have their own, you know, little rituals and stuff that sort of exist outside of the very closely related social and work lives. 
So many things that sound like they'll be very interesting to hear about mm-hmm. tomorrow. Uda, thank you so much for speaking to us this morning on Agenda. Uh, Women in Music Empowerment Day is happening tomorrow at Miss Peaches from 1pm and there'll be live music and art and DJs and dance as well as the interactive panel that you'll be speaking on. Um, if you want to find out more about that, just head to Agenda's program page at fbiradio.com slash programs and click on Agenda. Coming up on the show, uh, we're going to be chatting to Amrita Happy, but first, this is the newest one from Okenyo. It's called Hang Your Hat. with Katie Winton and Tanya Ali. You know what I found? I know you fucking around. She was on your mind. The friend that you called Jasmine. I mean, whatever happens, happens. Baby made me blind. So I kept wasting time, wanted to rewind But I'm always seconds after Jasmine I mean, whatever happens, happens 
now that you got time for it I hope that you show love I'm just fucking mad Cause this love was meant for me And I hope you do it all for Jasmine 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 You do, do, do it all for Jasmine You do it all for Jasmine You do it all Say you wanna go, where you wanna go, but you wanna go I bet you think I can't see, that you're cheating on me Last year on New Year's Eve Give, give, give and take, you go, you great She got disgrace, you got disgrace for fucking Jasmine Say you gotta go, sleeping on a pillow Say you gotta go, sleeping on a pillow You do it all for Jasmine You do it all for Jasmine You do, do, do it all for Jasmine You 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 do, do, do it all for Jasmine Jasmine played it right She took steps that would never make you wanna fight Where is my mind? The nights will get black So you better bother watch your back I mean, whatever happens, happens What happens, it just happens What happens, it just happens What happens, it just happens You're tuned in to Agenda on FBI Radio and you just heard Jasmine by Little Halima. Choreographer and dancer Amrita Happy is with us now to talk about her work for the National 2019 and about her practice more broadly. Thanks so much for joining us, Amrita. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You just got back from America. Yeah. <laughs> um, like yesterday. Yes. How are you feeling? Fine. I feel like that if you're getting... Like a piece of advice is if you're getting the 10.30 p.m. (laughs) flight from L.A. back to Sydney, if you sleep for six hours plus and stay awake for the day, you'll be fine. Oh, you heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Were you there for work? I was in Washington through DFAT. So the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade brought me over. They are doing something around NADOC. So recently they had a group of senior artists from Mullingimby come over and do a show called Touching the Infinite. So all females and a really prolific show of their work uh, from that art centre. They also wanted to bring someone over because of the theme of NADOC this year was because of her we can. They decided to bring over a younger contemporary Indigenous artist um, and that was me. So was brought over to Washington through, yeah, through DFAT. And DFAT is kind of like, it's, it's like the Australian embassy. So... Got to meet our wonderful um, foreign affairs, I guess, like diplomat, which actually was meant to be Joe Hockey, which 
yeah, well, that, <laughs> he, thank God he was away. <laughs> so good. there's another, there's another, uh, there's another person that stood in. Uh, she was a diplomat in uh, through Central America, and her name is. Uh, I only know her nickname, which is Dihom, and she was awesome. And so that was cool. Then it was like a program of things. So lecturing at Georgetown and UVA, Georgetown and a lot of the universities over there look like Harry Potter. So that was pretty wild. Um, and then performing at Kluge Roo. Kluge Roo is uh, an art gallery in Charlottesville, Virginia, has the biggest collection of Aboriginal art outside of Australia. So really amazing um, barks from... I think it's from, yeah, from Yerikala and yeah, a really comprehensive collection there as well as visiting a lot of the galleries and their archive collections. So doing a residency through the Smithsonian, if you ever go to Washington or if you're ever in New York, my advice is to get the train down to Washington because there's 17 museums down there and every single one is free. So some of the museums that I went to was the National Gallery of the American Indian, so a gallery that's, you know, six stories, or museum, I should call it, actually. It's six stories, really comprehensive, amazing, amazing space. Uh, the Hirshhorn, um, which is a contemporary art, the National Portrait Gallery, there's the International Gallery or Museum of the Spy. There was the Ooh. African-American History and Culture Museum, which was incredible, like so comprehensive. So, I, yeah, I, I highly recommend Washington, D.C. if you like museums and galleries. For free. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Yeah. What were you lecturing about at Georgetown? And- Georgetown, I was lecturing to the foreign service students. So a lot of uh, people that study at Georgetown will end up being or trying to be diplomats in different uh, ways. So there it was about arts, policy and politics. So talking a bit about how some of uh, some indigenous artists a lot of indigenous artists their practice has been used as a way to contribute to native title claims and has actually meant that they've been able to secure land and rights and autonomy over their land um and i think actually going sometimes when i'm outside of australia it reminds me of the importance of the work that you do back home and the responsibility of the work that you do back home so it's kind of talking a little bit about that and a little bit about i guess art in Australia. <laughs> Sounds like such a good trip. Yeah, it was awesome. It was really fun. <laughs> and you've recently been announced as a participating artist in the National 2019, which is a large-scale survey of contemporary Australian art in the form of three distinct ex- exhibitions that explore themes of hierarchy and power, dystopic futures and ritual and improvisation. Your work is going to be at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I know it's a little bit in the future, but could you tell <laughs> us a bit about what you reckon you'll be showing? Yes. So um, it's funny when they first asked me to do the national, I um, I had originally said, I'm going to make a robot and choreograph the robot. And they were like, no, 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 we want real people performing. <laughs> and I was like, would have been cheaper with a robot. But <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but... No, so for the national, I'll be making a new performance work, which is called A Tender, and I'll be looking at devising a choreographic methodology around rope and skipping and kind of using that as a way to build pressure, to release pressure, and I guess kind of cycling through uh, a few different uh I guess, choreographic algorithms that have to do with using rope and we'll be kind of 
cycling through a course of gestures, so to buck, to skip, to embrace and to relinquish. And I guess, yeah, I'm working with three really amazing um, performers, so uh, Ivy Warren, Rihanna Newton and Zachary Lopez, as well as working with a community skipping group. So these guys are in- incredible. Um, they compete all over the world and, yeah, they really have an amazing tenacity to respond to choreographic tasks in a new way. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Have and you worked with rope before? Yeah, a- I've worked with rope mostly in regards to weaving and using it as more of a costume element and a textural element. I guess the idea, um, yeah, yeah, so that's kind of how I've worked with it before. And then um, I guess in my family there's been a history of uh, of skipping and using skipping in different skipping games to kind of, um, I guess, inform language and, and uh, especially on the mission that my grandmother was in, they used to use skipping as a way and using skipping games because they could use it with a, uh, they used to use a clothesline to continue speaking language um, and use it as a game there. So I guess that was kind of the entry point of the initial investigation and also to the way that skipping is being used to kind of demarcate public space and to take over public space. Um, but it's also something that's quite convivial. And then I guess there's a few other ways that rope can be used. So yeah, yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> and I'm re- I'm also excited too because I'm working with um Jimmy Singh and Hana Shimada from Good God and they're going to be creating the set. So that's oh another gosh. really exciting element of it. I head down to Melbourne on Monday to go and talk to them. I've been wanting to work with them for years, so I'm excited to yeah, be bringing everyone in for this. Yeah. Um there's a curatorial statement that kind of talks about uh, the works that it will be in the Art Gallery of New South Wales, um, navigating the boundary between chaos and control in work that is by turns political, poetic and personal. And I feel like your work is kind of all of those things, <laughs> like, <laughs> political, poetic and personal. Um, and to kind of quote you, I guess you're interested in probing ideas of authenticity and the perpetuation of culture and tradition mm. and a decolonial imagination and questioning kind of where that now resides. Mm. And I just wanted to know if you could like talk to us a little bit about some of these ideas and where your practice is currently sitting more broadly, I guess, outside of just the work for the National. Yeah. Um, well, I think to break down the, the statement, because I feel like so often we put together artist statements and we're like, yeah, this is what it's about. Yeah. Like, this is it. <laughs> and then you, people will read that and they'll be like, so what, are, what is that actually? <laughs> um, but I think to break down that statement in, in three ways is that I guess probing this the dilemma of authenticity. So, so often I think we're, especially when it comes to minority cultures, we're looking for the things that we already know. We're looking for the marks to be like, how do we authentically know that this is an Indigenous work? If we can't see any feathers, sand, smoke, paint up, like what? I just don't know if it's Indigenous to me. So kind of, I guess, probing these ideas of what it means to be Indigenous now and trying to come at that with like a decolonial standpoint. And I feel as though... When you're, you when I use the term decolonial imagination, it's so it's it's broad and it's wide for a reason because there is so much imagining that we need to do that's outside of the colonial frameworks that we're put into. So I feel like it lets me be as open and as free as I as I want to be. Um, 
in regards to my practice at the moment. So funny, like, I think that it's something that's happening all the time with everything that I'm thinking about, but when it comes to putting it into a sentence, it's hard. I think the thing I have noticed about my practice at the moment is that it's something that... um, uh, that you don't always have to be in a studio to be working on your practice. Like, yes, I have a physical practice because I'm a dancer and a choreographer, but I don't think that I always, and I, I do, while I do think it's important to have studio time, I think that there's elements that are happening that, you know, when it comes to making the work um, prior to that, you're always kind of in it and thinking about it, whether it's conversations with friends, whether it's seeing other things from overseas or within your local community, there's something in there that's always working. So... Um, I feel like at the moment with my practice, I'm absorbing lots of things to figure out how I'm re- like redistributing them. Hmm. So important to take yeah. a bit of time to do that as well. I feel like there's so much <laughs> pressure on constant this constant like mode of output or creating yeah. all the time or like having oh, you know <laughs> <laughs> like ten things on the go at once, and sometimes you just need to like stop for a little bit yeah or not even stop just slow down yeah slow down and I think also to like acknowledge that um that there's so many things especially as an independent artist when you might not have a producer or as much support Mm -hmm. as you think that there is that even the logistics are a part of your practice so the biggest thing I think for me is a lot of the time I'm working with different people across, across different projects and I don't always have a producer to work with me because it's just not in the budget. So it's like, you know, organising seven different people's schedules or organising mm. where the hell we're going to rehearse and having a physical space to rehearse in, which is difficult in Sydney. And so these are kind of, these are all the bits that I have to, I'm realising that I have to negotiate in my within my practice as well. But it helps, I think, because it means that I'm, that I'm as thorough as I can be which I think is important. Uh, I'll never not be rigorous in that in that way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of another project that you're doing, <laughs> <laughs> you are also performing in Hannah Bronte's work for Liveworks called yes. Fem Press Wish Witch, which is coming up in a few weeks now. Uh, yep. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, Hannah Bronte is an amazing artist that I've known for a few years now and also someone that I... Yeah, really good friend as well. So I'm excited for that. I feel like FemPress takes a different form every single time I've been involved in it. And I feel like if anybody was ever going to talk about having an expanded practice, Hannah's somebody who actually really lives that. Like her parties are an extension of that. I remember going to an opening with her once in Brisbane and her being like, oh, this is so boring. <laughs> and she, and it, I was like, yeah, sometimes openings are really boring and they're not fun and how could you make it something that you would want to go to and how can you really I guess when people are talking about making things outside of the white cube um, I think that Hannah is really a a perfect example of that because she's taken everything that she likes and she's kind of an artist that will you know do whatever it takes to get the message across and so there is no one medium that she works in and so with this fan press uh yeah, uh, look, I know that she's making costumes and I know that they're going to be amazing. I know that the last time I spoke to her, she was like, I really want these industrial, like, um, like essence kind of like vaporizers. Yeah, I really. And she's someone that I feel like every time she does an event, she 
thinks about things so comprehensively. She's like, I want everyone to smell it. I want them to see it. I want them to be able to taste it. I remember when she was doing Next Wave, she was like, yeah, they wouldn't let me like patent like or make like a custom gum for the project that I was doing. And I was really disappointed. So everyone has to chew have a bubble when they walk in, when they walk in. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing for that yet, but I know that it'll be great. I know that she's preparing a lot of costumes. And I think that's also one of the great things about being an artist in Sydney or something that I've been really fortunate to be a part of is that I get the chance to work for other people, which I really, really love and I think is um, really important. It's like it's been nice to cultivate a community in, in, in yeah, being a part of somebody else's vision. And I, I really I really enjoy that. I get a lot out of it. Well, I guess it would make you kind of aware of how to work with people when it's part of your vision as well. You know, like being yeah. on kind of either side of those experiences would be like very beneficial, I can imagine. Yeah, it teaches you like what you kind of need to be. Yeah. What what you would, what your, your expectations are of a leader, but also to what your expectations are as as a participant, you know, and, and, and what you can expect on either side. And I think that's important as well but it's really fun to like to work with other people and I I I feel like I've been really lucky to be able to work with some really amazing artists in Sydney yeah I feel like you're you're one of those people that is just speaking (laughs) speaking of doing 20 million things at once um, I feel like M Reader's slow slowing down looks like someone else's like like, very speed ahead yeah Yeah. (laughs) um is there anything else that you want to mention before Any other uh, Any other projects on the, on the horizon on the boil? I guess. Well, something to mention this afternoon is that there. It's not really my project, but it's something I'm excited about, and I am doing a show there next year. Is that um, I know that Ange Go is performing at the opening as Cement Fondue this afternoon, so at five pm, and everyone should go to that. Um, I think I'm excited. I'm about to. To, to launch a project that I'm doing with Cement Fondue. I can't talk about it yet, but I'm really excited to get into that. And then, yes, the National in March, which will be great. And then there's a couple of other things on the boil. Recently just worked with Marigeku um, doing a work called the Danny Arapel, which premiered at Carriage Works, which was a great honour. They're one of those companies that I um, have been watching or dance companies that I've been watching since I was, you know, 16, 17. So really cool to work with them. Quite an exhausting work. Very, very beautiful and important, though. So we're about to go on tour with them around um, Europe. And uh, so if you happen to be through France or Belgium in December, you should look it up. Just pop in. Just pop in. Come say hi. Always good to see a fellow Aussie. Um, And then I guess, yeah, that's kind of, I guess, yeah, the national performance space working with Anna Bronte and then January kind of what I'm working on at the moment which is exciting <laughs> um and Rita thank you so much for coming in to talk to us my on pleasure Agenda this morning <laughs> uh we'll pop some links up on our show page to where people can go yeah. to see Hannah Bronte's work and yes. also yeah some more info about the national yeah um but we're going to leave you now with The Abyss of Doubt by Lynn from Autobiography uh which Perfect. is the score for her collaboration with British choreographer uh Wayne McGregor
Imagine! Stop! 